Welcome to the Dylan Taunts Podcast. Hello, welcome to What Is It About Bob Dylan? I'm here with Rob Virginio. Dr. Rob Virginio is a professor of English at Alfred University in Western New York. He is the editor and contributor to the collection Samuel Beckett and His Contemporary Art. He has published and presented widely on modernism and memory and has published pieces on Dylan and race and Dylan and Emmanuel Levinas. He is a member of the editorial board of the Dylan Review. He serves as Hager Professor of the Humanities at Alfred University and is currently at work on a book about the poetics of the Dylan album, John Wesley Harding. He also provided a fantastic piece for the Dylan Tons back in June of 2022 entitled, Is the Village Green Preservation Society? Notes on Dylan, Memory, and Pilgrimages. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much, Jim, for having me. This is a real uh, uh, pleasure and privilege. So what is it about Bob Dylan? For me, it is the sound. Now, most people who read my uh, writing on Dylan or hear me speaking about Dylan or hear me teaching about Dylan um, would think that this is an incredibly paradoxical statement. Um, I tend to love textual deep dives. I love to parse the lyrics. I love to parse the different performances of different lyrics. And yet for me, it always comes back to the sound. Um, uh, I I really like your um, introductory um, snare drum snap, Bobby Gregg's snare drum snap from Like a Rolling Stone. I mean, right away, that opens up an an incredible imaginative world. And I know Dylan himself, as much as he is kind of um, an anti-producer in the sense that Dylan has always in the studio, I think also been driven by just this sound that's in his head. And so Tom Wilson and other producers just kind of their job was to sit back and um, let Dylan kind of communicate to his musicians to say, this is the sound I want. This is the sound I want. And the musicians had to kind of interpret what that meant until they got it right. So Dylan has this kind of intuitive sense that like really comes across in his albums for me, right? Now, it's not just that thin, wild, mercury sound on Blonde on Blonde. And it's not his voice as a musical instrument, so to speak, right? There's certainly things about his uh, uh, particular phrasing and intonation that is unique and specific and uh, enduring and endearing about his voice, but it's really um, the, the, the sound that catches me. Um, everything from uh, the harmonica, the, the parched harmonica of all along the watchtower with his really kind of um, driven, urgent vocals in the original version of that song up until the last verse of my own version of you, where he sings this incredibly long verse that just goes on and on. Um, And um, to follow the twists and turns, I don't know what that verse means. I don't know what he's saying when he's talking about uh, Karl Marx and Freud in hell with the rawhide whip, rip the skin from their back. But the sound that he that 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 he produces in that studio just draws me in, and it's always about it's always been um, about about the sound for me. Yeah, yes, of course, that's the tip of the iceberg. And I come back, 
And I'm drawn into those lyrics. And there will come a day where I will look very closely at that last um, verse of my own, uh, that last verse of my own version of you and really try and parse it. But for now, I like the magic that he created in the studio and the sound of it. So for me, what it is about Bob Dylan is this indelible uh, 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 sound. Everything from the Guthrie-esque scratchiness of his earliest raw performances up until um, his uh, work as Jack Frost, the producer, where he's trying to get all manner of um, American music into uh, sometimes even just one verse of a song. Um, it's always been about the sound for me. Um, and that's uh, uh, my partner, uh, Monica. She, every time I say this, she rolls her eyes. It's like, no, this is, no, you're an English guy. You're you're a you're an English professor. You're you're a word guy. It's the language. That's what's drawing you. It's the lyrics. And so this has even infected our conversations about music, where I'll be able to say, I really love that song. And she's like, Well, what are the lyrics? I'm like, I don't know what the lyrics even are. I just, you know, <laughs> dummy lyric along with it. I like the beat. I like the sound. So it's 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 uh that's that's my my short answer uh that devolved into a longer answer to that question. What is it about Bob Dylan that you strong me back and does that sound yeah that that's that's a, that's a great answer um it's interesting because i you know i just uh interviewed grayley hearn and his thing was the words he came to dylan through yes. the words yes um, his mother gave him a lyric book yeah um, before he heard the music which i i didn't really delve into into it with him because i was so shocked when he told me yes it, um it, it, that's amazing and so you're saying almost the opposite you like yes. Rayleigh, like me your word guy um, but you are going for the sound that that's, yeah. that's cool. I was introduced to Dylan songs as Joan Baez songs through my mom. Mm. She would play, um, any day now, the album of, uh, Dylan covers by Joan Baez when I was a, a, a real little kid. And, um, she would, when I was a little bit older, she would all, and she began to really introduce me to the music. She loved to play that live album of Baez's, um, from, from every stage. Uh, which had a, th I'll never, it's indelible. It's in my mind. It's, there's a three song uh, uh, run, uh, please come to Boston, Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And then the night they drove old Dixie down and my mother would always sit down and say, listen to the words, you know, these are story songs. These are great stories. And um, so they were uh, Joan Baez songs for me um, before they were uh, Bob Dylan songs. Um, and um, so she was always like pushing me towards listening to these um, songs as, as, as stories, as narrative that captured her imagination. Um, Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, of course, a song that she and I have talked about our entire lives together. We still can't get to the heart of <laughs> exactly what the interconnection of these characters are, but that's what makes it kind of uh, so wonderful. But for my, definitely, I would say that the, the, the running soundtrack in my house, especially my mom's uh, record collection, which was everything from Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack to the Supremes to Joan Baez. I mean, it, it, that was it, it, to Stevie Wonder. These were things that were like, you know, it was, it was this, this constant soundtrack. And so my ear was being pulled in all of these different, di different directions. So she would be the last person to give me <laughs> a book of lyrics. Um, uh, she would say, no, listen to, listen to Joni saying, and if you don't like, if you don't like the words, just listen to the voice. Listen, it, it tells a story on its own.
Yeah, I love that. That so you you beautifully anticipated my next question, which yes. is about your Dylan journey. So what was your your Dylan Rubicon? That that moment where there was just yeah. no going back. Yeah. That I I it's it's strange that I I again, I grew up with these songs um as Joan Baez songs um when I was a um a surly uh, junior high school student and high school student, um, anything from um, the classic rock era. Once I left, you know, Led Zeppelin behind, uh, it was kind of anathema to me. Um, I didn't hate the Beatles. I didn't hate Bob Dylan. I didn't hate the Rolling Stones. I just, my interests turned to uh, Dinosaur Jr., the Pixies, the Replacements, Husker Du, uh, uh, Sonic Youth, uh, Lou Reed in the Velvet Underground, of course, uh, n- not necessarily of my era, but uh, things like that drew drew uh, uh, my attention. And um, but Dylan was 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 always there. But I can have a, I have a very particular moment in which um, I was I worked at a uh, produce warehouse over the summers and uh, uh, to make money in, in high school and in college. And I think it was if I can put my finger on it, the summer between my uh, 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 freshman year of college and my freshman year of college was dominated by a tribe called Quest the Wu-Tang Clan, De La Soul. Um, that was the music of my first year of college, uh, 19, I'm not going to say when that was, but if you, it's when Wu-Tang Clan's first album came out a long time Back in ago. the 1900s. Yes, exactly. Say. Right. <laughs> the 1900s. And, um, uh, uh, but then that summer, um, there was a friend of mine, Pete, I remember his name, Pete, we would go after, on Fridays, we'd go down to the Connecticut River, uh, away from the warehouse in Hartford, and drink a couple beers and uh, sit on a bank of sand and watch the river flow. And he had the little crappy hatchback. He had the open door of the hatchback to play the music, and it was Visions of Johanna, not a necessarily unique song to draw you in. I know it's everyone, it's a lot of people's kind of favorite Dylan song. Uh, I know that, you know, when I really got into Dylan fandom, you know, if you got to hear uh, visions uh, to at, at a concert you went to, you were particularly lucky. I remember his, I can see it almost like in a, in a, in a film, the, the hatchback open, the river going by the late summer uh, uh, sunset, uh, uh, the beers in the hands. And I was just, again, it was the sound. I was utterly captivated by the sound. It was a song I knew. It was a song my mother played. Um, it was a song that, uh, but I just, it just, I hadn't heard it in just that way. And from then on, I became omnivorous. I was like, all right, blonde on blonde, listen to that 24 seven. And my sophomore year of college, um, uh, uh, People were baffled that all the CDs, this is back in the CD era, all the CDs I had lined up in my dorm were uh, uh, Bob Dylan CDs. And uh, that was my uh, Rubicon moment. And then I drifted away. I drifted away from, from, from Dylan. Uh, as, uh, and it was really um, in, 19, again, it was, uh, it was uh, 1999. I saw him in New Haven where he performed Folsom Prison Blues along with I and I. Um, I went with my, my cousin because she was a, uh, a, a deadhead and he was touring with Phil Lesh. And she said, I got this ticket, come see Dylan. I, Time Out of Mind has just come out. And I was, I remember listening to it in a bar in Albany where I was living at the time. And um, I was, my ears 
perked up because the music that Dylan was putting out before Time Out of Mind was something that really didn't click with me. So um, I bought Time Out of Mind. I listened to it obsessively before the concert. I started again getting back into it. And I saw him live that concert and it just was indescri- it was an indescribable aesthetic experience. He was on his game, the fall of 1999. And that was when I, uh, the next summer of 2000, I saw him, I think, 11 times in a row. And he was touring with Phil Lesh. Phil would play at night because Phil had a light show that he needed to, that he put a lot of money into. And of course, if you're playing outside outdoor state shows in the summertime, uh, 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 that's not going to work in the day. So I got to see Dylan in natural lighting like 11 times in a row, summer of 2000, he was playing um, some old, uh, uh, he would open up with, with uh, I Am The Man Thomas, sometimes right? Cocaine Blues, sometimes he'd play these old folk songs, and then he would dig into his back catalog. And from then on, it's been obsessive bootleg collecting, uh, uh, listening to everything, diving back into the bootlegs, realizing that there was this whole subterranean world of Dylan performance that I had not really that I really wasn't aware of. So the Rubicon moment was that, you know, in between uh, freshman and sophomore year of college, and then definitely the fall of 1999. After that, I was just far gone, far gone. The stuff that my, the seeds that my mother had planted just completely blossomed. And for a long time, I didn't listen to any new music uh, because I was so into uh, Dylan. That's fantastic. So in your piece that you, that you contributed to the Dylan Tons, you described what yeah. you call your pilgrimage to yeah. the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa. And you write of places in that piece where ghosts have begun to speak. So assuming that they're still speaking to you, what ghosts still speak from the Bob Dylan Center to you? I cannot wait to answer that question in full. Uh, this summer, uh, uh, I'm planning to be in the center doing research for my book on John Wesley Harding. I got to glimpse a little bit of his notebooks from 1971, where he's playing with the, pro, the, the, the form of the proverb. Um, I think one of them goes something like Emerson never needed a soiree and neither do I. Um, <laughs> it just makes no sense, but just sounds so funny. Um, but um, yeah, in that piece, it was a lot of ghosts beginning to speak. It's it's Dylan has such a sense of the history that's embedded in one single on a forty-five, right? Um, he's got such a, a sense of the history that's embedded in um, a, a particular phrase that he wants to play with and, and repeat and turn around in his in his mind and in his mouth that um, listening to his music, I truly have to say has kind of opened up my eyes to all of the different kinds of American musics that underlie the stuff that I really love, but then also the history that's underfoot wherever you are in America. And often that history is effaced intentionally or erased due to apathy. Um, I think the ghosts that will speak to me from the Dillon Center will be the ghosts of um, 1967 and 1968, those tumultuous years in America, 
And uh, it's typically framed those years as Dylan's kind of retreat up to Woodstock, his, his non compliant, uh, you know, I'm not going to play at the Woodstock ceremony, even though I'm down the road uh, ceremony. <laughs> the woods, I, I call it, it's an interesting slip of the tongue there, right? Because <laughs> Woodstock has become this kind of like this, this, this pilgrimage site, this iconic moment of uh, youth culture that by denying, uh, uh, you know, by not playing there, he somehow was denying this kind of youth movement where I really don't think that um, he was retreating all that much. I, I take I him, I don't really take him at his word in um, Chronicles, um, where he said, I was a domestic guy. I was, I was raising kids. I was not really into the riots that were going on all across the country in the 60s. I know there was tumult, but I was kind of on the sidelines. It's like, bullshit, you weren't, you weren't on the sidelines. You, you're, you were friends with people who were in the midst. So he was hearing this stuff all the time. So those ghosts of, of, uh, uh, and I always love to uh, kind of foreground this in my class when I teach music from that era that, you know, the summer of love was also the long, hot summer. And um, uh, I think that those are the ghosts that will that speak to me, I hope, from the from uh, the Dylan Center. But I, have, I don't know. I don't know what's there. There's there's apparently lyrics to songs he never recorded, um, tantalizingly called "The Drifter's Return" or something along those lines, uh, or "The Return of the Wicked Messenger." That's it. There was an essay in the World of Bob Dylan collection that Sean Latham uh, Latham uh, uh, collected that that tantalizingly talks about the return of the Wicked Messenger. Right. So he's he's playing. Uh, uh, with um, all of the kind of um, uh, uh, myths and 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 um, parables and and pseudo proverbs that he's whipping together in John Wesley Harding, and um, uh, I I find that a, a a really powerful, not just poetic uh, experimentation, but um, thinking through the political issues at the of the day and where he stands as an artist in terms of the politics of the day what his role is as an artist i i think and it's interesting that that john wesley harding gets elided so often but we can maybe talk about that a little bit later yeah i um i love that answer and the um i just returned from the bob dylan center myself and i'm working on a piece as i was mentioning to you earlier yes on the uh, the intersection of the sort of the fraught racial tensions of of uh tulsa and the bob dylan center or the lack of intersections um and you talk about the erasure of history and and dylan trying not trying to preserve history and that's exactly what i talk about so that's a a nice little synergy there yeah yeah i mean because it is this kind of recovery project the um the work of the activists in in tulsa Mm -hmm. uh, the greenwood um um center right is trying to re not recreate, but remember actively remember um, the, the the incredibly vibrant culture that had that was uh, destroyed, and um, you've got the same kind of um, desire to kind of collect at, at 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 the Dylan Center. Certainly, two very very different forms of collecting going on, right? One in the yeah. teeth of active erasure, the other of a Nobel Prize winning. Uh, American artist. So um, two different kinds of collecting, um, but there are intersections, I think. There, there are. It's, it's interesting. 
So let's talk about a little bit about um, John Wesley Harding. So you, yeah. you have a, a book you're working on, on yeah. the poetics of John Wesley Harding. Yeah. So can you give us a little preview? Yeah, I can give you a little preview. I mean, in the early, I've, I've been in the early stages of this book for a long time. So people that know me uh, that might be listening to this might roll their eyes like, you're not done yet. But um, what I'm, uh, the, the poetics of John Wesley Harding, I kind of, uh, uh, it, the reason why I'm I, I I'm attracted to this album, um, it interestingly, goes back to listening to it on the radio. Um, I think one of the reasons that John Wesley Harding was elided in the um, tr- not elided per se, but not fully represented on the traveling through bootleg series was just because there's simply not enough outtakes from the um, uh, John Wesley Harding sessions. As far as we know, they were very lean. Dylan came in with these songs written. The songs, as you know, are um, these four square, really um, stripped down, simple compositions. And um, there was not a lot of time needed in the studio to kind of bang them out. So that might be one practical reason why. But then if you read the liner notes and traveling through and you, uh, a lot of the reviews of that bootleg session, it focuses on Johnny Cash, it focuses on Nashville skyline. It talks about country music and the incredibly weird and strange world of John Wesley Harding that that song series, I like to call it a song series because they all are so interconnected, um, uh, uh, just gets kind of skipped over and um, uh, uh, talked aside. Um, uh, Grail Marcus in um, The Old Weird America has this incredibly um, uh, uh, wonderful but simply suggestive um, little paragraph in his discography section about John Wesley Harding. He calls it the basement tape's second mind and then leaves it at that. And it's like, oh, please write more about that. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do in, um, in, in John Wesley Harding. But I remember listening uh, to um, All Along the Watchtower on the radio, Jimi Hendrix's version. That was during the day. And I listened to an FM radio station um, in the Hartford area. And at night they had a kind of free form. This is really back in the day, <laughs> free form kind of radio. And um, the, um, I'll never forget the, the DJ said, you know, we play the Jimi Hendrix version during the day. And I, I was a Nighthawk. When I was you know, like 13, 14 years old, I would be up late at night, you know, cigarettes I stole from my mom, smoking in my little room there with the window open, listening to this music late at night. And he said, but we'll play the original at night. And I was gobsmacked by Dylan's original version of All Along the Watchtower because it was Jimi Hendrix's song. And then to hear what was the original was, uh, again, I think I mentioned it earlier in this interview, the, 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 the piercing harmonica, which sounds like some sort of wounded voice. And then the own, his, his own kind of urgency in singing the lyrics just absolutely kind of uh, uh, captivated me. And the preview, the book is really going to look at the different um, literary predecessors that um, and I use the word literature to encompass not only um, poetry and prose, but also music as well. I think one of the great things about the Nobel Prize in literature being given to Dylan is that we can consider something like Tutti Frutti by Little Richard literature, which I do. Um, and um, uh, But what he, what, some of the predecessors I'm looking at is something like William Blake's Proverbs of Hell, 
as filtered through um, uh, Ginsburg's use of Blake. So you've got Dylan using Blake in a much different way in um, the um, on John Wesley Harding, um, where he's using and referencing the book of Proverbs. What he's doing interestingly in John Wesley Harding is he's weaving together or pressing together or trying to braid together the language of Ecclesiastes with the language of Proverbs, two radically different books of uh, the Hebrew scripture and in tone wise. And then I'm also looking to uh, bring to bear upon John Wesley Harding uh, Kafka and uh, Kafka's parables and um, the truly kind of modernist version of the parables that you get in John Wesley Harding, where they don't quite coalesce. And so I've got, um, you know, uh, uh, I was just, um, uh, one one of the songs that struck me when I first started listening to this album and becoming a deep, deep fan of it was I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. And growing up Catholic, I knew who St. Augustine was. Um, I had a, a, a priest during catechism class who um, captivated us with Augustine's um, description of uh, the passage of time in um, uh, the confessions and how there really is no present moment because there's only the anticipation of it and the fading away of it. And I remember being a young kid and being blown away by it. I'm like, wow, how can catechism be so cool? And then we had, you know, some terrible, boring teacher the next week anyway, and that was faded away. But um, (laughs) um, I remember listening to that song and knowing from uh, uh, St. Augustine, but the narrative is there, but it is such a ghostly, sketched out, um, uh, uncanny kind of uh, narrative. There's deep emotion in it, but it's so uncanny. And it's like something out of Kafka. It's like the judgment where the emotion is so, so deep. But the narrative, and spoiler here, when the main character throws himself off the bridge, you get this shock of, and you try and re-piece it together and you reread it. And that's what a lot of uh, what happens in the songs of John Wesley Harding for me. So those are, that's, that's a kind of a mini kind of preview of how I'm looking at some of the uh, 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 literary predecessors of uh, John Wesley Harding. I love it. It sounds great. It's, I'm really looking forward to seeing this book. Get back to work. <laughs> I know. I need to. I need to. <laughs> so you, you and I met at the Comparative Drama Conference, which is where I also know Grayley from, um, Grayley Hearn. Uh, and I, I, anyone who's hearing this is probably going to think that Comparative drama conference is some sort of bastion of Dylan studies at this point, (laughs) (laughs) which it is not. It is not its primary focus, but it has its moments. Exactly. Um, So we were, so uh, we were both on a panel um, on Dylan and performance that Grayley had organized way back in the day. And you presented on Dylan and gender. Yeah. Yeah. Do you recall the gist of that paper? I do. Um, it came out of a longer presentation that I gave in another venue um, called, called No Prophet's Son, uh, Bob Dylan's Fathers. And the gist of the paper was kind of putting these two father figures of Dylan up in contrast with each other, Johnny Cash and um, Little Richard. And how Dylan has always kind of played with the Johnny Cash outlaw type figure. Whereas um, if you, uh, my basic thesis, I think in that presentation was the self-presentation and the music that he uh, performed in the 1966 tour of Britain was straight out of Little Richard. 
and that this kind of performance of androgyny, um, uh, this kind of music that was a full embrace of rock and roll um, came out of the iconoclastic fig father figure of Little Richard and not the more, I don't want to say conservative because uh, that brings up politics in a strange way, um, but the, the more kind of traditionally minded Americana roots kind of father figure of um, uh, Johnny Cash. And that's not to say that Cash isn't a huge influence on Dylan and isn't an important figure, but I was trying to do something um, uh, 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 a little bit uh, more kind of subversive in a way and to think about um, the ways in which Dylan's self-presentation at the time um, and uh, embraced androgyny and the way that the music itself um, was plugged into the really uh, sexual, sexually iconoclastic uh, uh, music of, of of early rock and roll. Yeah, that's um, that's that's really interesting. So, how has your thinking on Dylan evolved since then? That was a while ago. Right? That was a while ago, and six, it's seven years ago. And so, and if so, how? I mean, what, what, what? And if not, what, what's persisted? What's persisted is definitely um, Dylan's fidelity to Little Richard, to early rock and roll, to those kind of iconoclastic moments. Um, what hasn't so much, and what's come to the fore, is um, uh, Dylan's investment in. I don't think a conscious investment. Or, really but dylan's investment in rather uh, to put it bluntly patriarchal structures and um somebody some would say i wouldn't uh necessarily say misogyny but there are threads of misogyny in the songs themselves is dylan a misogynist no but there are threads of misogyny in the songs and so if i'm talking about the 1966 tour and i'm talking about dylan presenting in a, a form of androgyny um where uh, part of what he's doing is not playing the role of uh the very clear masculine uh political folk singing hero um he's also writing songs like just like a woman which are problematic in many ways so my thinking has kind of i've kind of uh moved away from the intentionally subversive argument of that particular piece to kind of recognizing that you know Dylan and gender is, is, is way complicated. It's very complicated. It's not, it's not something that you can say he is an iconoclast of the level of little Richard, nor is he necessarily uh, a full on um, kind of uh, conservator of patriarchal gender norms either. Um, uh, he's uh, interwoven in his music are these different threads. And so that's Dylan. So that's where my thinking has definitely changed. Is that Dylan and and, and gender is something that that that's that's uh, deeply complex, and 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 I need to do a little bit more uh, thinking about. Yeah, I, it's it's um, you know I'm I'm writing on Dylan and race now, and you know as a white male, I'm yes. you know seeing the the limits of that. Or do you yeah. have similar misgivings? 
For sure. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I teach here uh, in Alfred. Uh, I teach a course in the Harlem Renaissance. I teach a course, a seminar, an upper level seminar in, in African-American literature. Um, my Bob Dylan seminar is awash a in um, uh, blues poetics. And um, uh, so I find myself in that interesting position of having uh, students of color being taught um, about uh, the blues or at the African-American literary tradition from, you know, a cisgender straight white male. Right. So yeah. um, but I, my strategy in the classroom is always to bring that to the forefront. That's what I think a college classroom should be, is a place where you can kind of like say, okay, these problematics need to be spoken about. I've read these works more deeply than you, presumably. I've done the work in the secondary research, presumably, right? Um, uh, I have a, a, a certain claim on these works, right? But you have a claim on these works as well. And so um, the way that we come to these works that history needs to be spoken about in the classroom. And, but yeah, it is, it is a, 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 a fraught thing. Um, and it all, Dylan and race has always been um, a, a really, really complex. I mean, there he is on his first album singing Booker White's, you know, uh, fixing to die in a way that is kind of, I wouldn't say minstrelsy, but is, you know, an attempt to not really think through uh, blues poetics in the way. But then at the same time, he, he, he is singing um, uh, uh, No More Auction Block in a way that is most definitely uh, so different from Paul Robeson's very strident uh, 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 iteration of that anthem. And Odetta's, uh, he's kind of, Dylan, when he performed it, it's so mournful. It's so sad. And uh, uh, is that a way of speaking to a kind of grief that cannot, that he doesn't have a way of expressing, uh, that he doesn't have license to express? Maybe. That is the theme of Blind Willie McTell. So he's thinking about this deeply his entire career, which is something that to his, to his benefit, right? He's thinking about the, the, this throughout his entire career. Yeah, absolutely. Um but like gender, it is a it is an issue that has got many tentacles, um, many many layers. Maybe is a better metaphor. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Tell me what else you're reading. Um, what else am I reading right now? I am deeply invested in uh, Nathaniel Mackey's epic poem, uh, um, Double Trio. It's three long epic poems that he put together. I happen to think Nathaniel Mackey is one of our uh, great visionary poets. Uh, I put him and Susan Howe up at the top. They're my favorite poets uh, uh, as uh, kind of going concerns. And I recognize that they are of even a different generation. So um, as, as much as, as cutting edge as their work is, um, uh, you know, they are poets that, writing in their 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 late style so to speak but that's what i've been deeply invested in and but what i've also been fortunate enough to have the time to read over the summer is richard zenith's uh absolutely brilliant literary biography of fernando pessoa the uh, portuguese modernist poet who wrote in heteronyms he wrote uh, he created 
uh, a series of authors and gave them biographies and wrote in completely different styles for these different poets, a very Dylan-esque gesture, I think. Um, and uh, uh, I've been going back to his poetry um, in the original Portuguese, which I try and get my my wife is Portuguese, so I know a little bit. I'm trying to get through the original Portuguese, but I'm much more uh, uh, struck. Uh, it's less of a, a, a task to read Richard Zenith's wonderful translations, and especially Pessoa's book, the, the Book of Disquiet, which is a series of fragmentary meditations um, that, of course, presumably written by a completely different person. Um, so that's what I've been reading lately as we say in academia for fun, because I'm not teaching that stuff. (laughs) And for a while I was hesitant to teach Dylan as a seminar because I said to myself, no, I want that to be my thing. That's my little own Island of aesthetic bliss. I don't want to make it into a syllabus and assignments and things like that, but um, it's actually quite wonderful to um, teach Dylan and to teach Dylan to students that um, don't even know who he is. I taught my own Dylan course for a while. Um, and most of the students really had very little idea sure. who he was, if at all, Yeah, which was part of the fun and part of the horror of the class. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, usually by the end, they started really, uh, really getting into it. Yeah. I found it. Inter- what I found interesting was uh, the, the ch- I, 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 when I first taught, I was correct in assuming that they would be on the side of, um, Dylan in Newport 65 to be super reductive, you know, that they would embrace the music of Blonde on Blonde and Highway 61 and um, uh, say, oh my God, what squares these people were to boo him and to think that Newport 65 was some sort of apostasy. And I think it was because of the tenor of the times in our country. Yeah. The students felt profoundly betrayed. They said, man, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll and Masters of War, these are profoundly moving works. And what is he doing writing something like Visions of Johanna? It doesn't strike me. And that was really surprising to me. That, yeah, that's interesting. I, I never, I, I always tended to teach literature um, non-chronologically, we'll say. Yes. Even when yes. I taught um, surveys because I, I just couldn't stand teaching timelines. Um, so I never taught Dylan chronologically. So I never had that experience. I would, I would just sort of immerse them in and let them see if they swim or drown for a little while. Um, so they never really had that, that, that shock. I might do that next time around. I might do that next time around. I, I certainly, we never really got around to the later stuff that I love. Cause I think love and theft is just one of his most brilliant albums. And we never got oh. around to that um, because I would always focus on um you know, his early roots. I really wanted them to understand who Little Richard was, who um, uh, uh, Blind Willie McTell was, who Woody Guthrie was, and to kind of, you know, which is, I guess is a lame kind of very conservative way of, of drawing up a syllabus, just do it chronologically. But um, I found the, the um, uh, uh, left turns in his uh, career uh, to be engaging in themselves. Um, but yeah, maybe it's time to dust off that service and do the heavy lifting of, uh, of, of decontextualizing the works and putting them uh, something like uh, High Water for Charlie Patton up against mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, Highway 61 Revisited and see what, 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 what follows in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's interesting. It is interesting. I, one, I, will, I will tell you this one time, because I think very highly of Love and Theft myself. Um, one time I taught 
I, it, it was highly contextualized. Um, I taught just two albums. I did Blood on the Tracks and Love and Theft. Wow. Students. I thought they were two albums that were interestingly and deceptively accessible, right? Yes. Um, the, you, you start down the rosy primrose path of those albums and then you realize, oh, no, 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 this is a dark wood. Yes. Um, yes and yes. so I, I, I think I called it, um, I think I called it Blood and Theft. <laughs> That's wonderful. That sounds so cool. They hated it. <laughs> they hated it. It was it was really extraordinary. I never tried. What do they know? So what other what other sort of music do you enjoy? You've gestured toward a few things, but what do you listen to for fun? I listen to everything, and I mean, I know it's hopelessly um, evasive to say that, uh, but I really do everything from classical music to jazz to blues to uh, indie rock. Um, so, I mean, just what I've currently been listening to, um, Angel Ols- Olsen's new um, country album, Big Time. Um, I love uh, Julia Holter, who does these kind of um, chamber pop songs. Julia Holter's album, um, Have You in My Wilderness, is just absolutely uh, just this beautiful, uh, uh, lush, experimental uh, album in, 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 in pop music. And um, uh, I, I listen very closely and, uh, to Liz Harris, who goes by the name Grouper. It's acoustic music mixed with electronic um, uh, music. Uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, I'm a big fan of the group um, Lamb Chop out of Nashville, Tennessee. They've got a new album coming out. They've been making music since 1994, so they're not exactly you know a new group, but they've got a new album coming out um, in, a, uh, in September. Um, and I've been listening, I listen to a lot of uh, just, uh, I listen really to everything. I have to say that my, my, taste in uh jazz and uh is more on the experimental side but is kind of um uh i like the uh music that was put out by the italian label um uh, uh black saint records so mm-hmm. um anthony braxton yeah mm-hmm. uh, i was going to bring up braxton earlier actually That's yeah funny. absolutely yeah precisely so stuff like that in the, in that particular vein and i love i love hip-hop um, and so I've been listening to uh, one of my, my two favorite um, artists right now, or Pusha T, who his work with Kanye West on the album Dan- Daytona was just brilliant. And um, uh, Freddie Gibbs, who is a, a great lyricist who works with all different kinds. He's worked with the producer Mad Lib on the album Bandana, which was really good. And then he worked with Alchemist uh, on the album Alfredo, uh, which is one of the best uh, hip hop albums I've heard in the past couple of years. So I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. So you really don't know my, my, um, uh, I've always got Spotify going in my office here at, at, at work and my um, uh, neighbor, uh, the professor next door to me, she's always saying, I never know what's going to come out of that room. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's some screeching experimental classical music piece, piece by Yurgi Kirtag. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, 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 hip hop. Sometimes it's country music. Oftentimes, I will admit, it's Dylan. It's uh, an eclectic. An eclectic yeah, yeah. I listened to, uh, really to, 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 and I have to say it goes back to uh, uh, my parents and my mom's record collection. They would just, they were non-hierarchical listeners. They had just a long string of LPs up against the wall. They took up a whole wall and you would just, as a kid, I would just dive in there and yank out uh, uh, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On to 
Carol King's tapestry and, you know, all kinds of stuff that we would listen to. The Beatles were obviously something that we would listen to, but the Stones were mixed in there as well. And uh, Motown was really well represented. So that was kind of, uh, but it was all non-hierarchical. It was all just like, I would, as a kid, I would go in there and grab stuff and just look at the the LP covers, you know? And then right. my parents would, that's how they, that's how my mom would listen. She'd go through and she she's not like me. She wouldn't like pick a part and oh, I really need to listen to this and go and find it in the archive. It's just like, eh, I'll run my finger along the spines of these records, pull one out and listen to it and give it a listen. Wow. And so that, that kind of eclecticism I think comes from that experience. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, that's a great exposure to music. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go back to Braxton a little bit. Um, so you, earlier you were talking about, um, just how Dylan would just throw his musicians into the, into the, into the mix, oh, into yeah. the deep end of the pool. Right. And, and it may, and I, every time I hear that, um, I always think of Anthony Braxton's compositions absolutely, is, where he would literally have a color and the musicians are supposed to play the color yep. and they have to make sense of it. Um, really, really fascinating improvisation. Absolutely. Um, very, very similar approach. And I, I've always thought about the, what's the, what's the nexus between Braxton's approach and Dylan's approach. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, 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 a rich uh, kind of contrast there. I, I think Braxton by you, you, the layer that connects Dylan and Braxton is their choice of musicians. Yeah. yeah. It's not like they're just finding, okay, who's, it's not like Chuck, uh, Chuck Berry rolling into town and, and saying, who are the best musicians or who's someone right. that knows my songs? I'm going to pay. They carefully curate who they're going to play. So they know that they've got musicians that are coming in with a particular uh, background. And we know from Dylan, it's always, you know, the audition processes are never his own songs. Mm -hmm. It seems to be um, that they play, you know, old country tunes, old folk tunes, old rock and roll tunes. And it's Dylan says, okay, this person has a good sense of the music that came before. Then I can throw him in the mix and, and, and say, all right, what, what, this is the sound I want. Yeah. Play him a tape on some boom box and say, this is the sound I want. It's yeah. like, who, who does that? Nobody, yeah. this is ridiculous. Braxton too, knows yeah. who he's working with and knows that they know the, 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 the tradition is uh, uh, in, in specifically. So there's that curatorial aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And so when Braxton says, this is the color we're going to go for guys, yeah. right? This is, he knows that in some sense, they're going to head in a particular direction because they, they, they are, uh, uh, improvisational or jazz artists that that come from particular lines yeah yeah I, I wonder if the other the other aspect of the the uh nexus is more physical in that it's the yeah. stress sweat of the musicians themselves <laughs> in that situation yeah yeah you can only imagine i mean i've heard i've heard musicians comment on being thrust in with dylan and and with braxton um yeah. it can be terrifying um, absolutely absolutely. absolutely play blue Right. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. Or, you know, the enigmatic, the Sphinx like Dylan, you know, I want right. this song to sound like a Buddy Holly record. And then he gives you the lyrics to, you know, um, Red River Shore or something like right. that. Like, well, oh, right. uh, I don't quite see the connection here. So I'm going to try and make this yep. work. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So anything else you want to add before we wrap up here? Other than um, or, uh, to repeat my gratitude for this awesome opportunity. This was so much fun. 
Yeah, I, I really love this. And I love the the constellation of Dylan scholars and thinkers that you've been able to uh, arrange around this uh, this particular project. And so I hope it gathers steam and I hope it continues and I hope I can contribute more in the future. Yeah, please do. I welcome it. And um, we are getting more subscribers. So those of you listening, please subscribe. Indeed. Um, it, it's free. Um, <laughs> I have no idea how to monetize it, so it's free <laughs> and it is, a, it is a collective. I, you know, I'm, I'm taking the lead now, but I'm hoping to sort of step aside and make it more collective in the future. Wonderful. Yeah. All right, Rob, it's been great. It's been great, Jim. Thank you so much for, uh, giving me this opportunity and it's great to be, uh, to meet up with you again, if yeah. only over zoom. <laughs> we'll, we'll see each other again, probably in Tulsa. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. I'm going to be there for the World of Bob Dylan uh, conference this uh, coming summer. And uh, my um, research uh, dates for my John Wesley Harding book completely dovetail with being in Tulsa for that. So perfect. I will be there in Tulsa. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons podcast. Be sure to subscribe to receive the Dylan Tons directly to your inbox. And please share on social media.